Welcome to episode two of 1M1, the movie music podcast. I'm Alex Steiermark, the creator and host of the show. This episode is a conversation with film composer Carter Burwell. Many of you will know Carter from the music that he's written for the Coen Brothers films. That's an amazing collaborative relationship that goes back more than three decades. We recorded this conversation in downtown Manhattan at Carter's studio. I really appreciated his taking the time to have this conversation. He was in the middle of mixing the music for the new Todd Haynes film, Wonderstruck, in the next room. While we were having this conversation, there was a lot of construction going on outside on the street below. So from time to time, it sounds like we're in somewhere in the Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink. Either way, I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Carter Burwell, thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. One of the things that I've always been struck by is your background with uh, computer science, animation. I think the last time I saw you, you were taking classes at Columbia and was it biomechanics? Biotechnology, yeah. Biotechnology. So can you talk about your interest in that? And then I'd be curious if you see any influence from that in in the way you approach (laughs) music. Well, um, yeah, I guess it's by way of trying to make trying to make something productive out of, uh, out of, you know, a midlife situation where, you know, I, I remember when my um, second child was born, uh, I, I was, I guess, 50, and um, I just felt that trying to find some balance between family and doing film composition uh, had become impossible for me. It's, you know, the film music is written on a, always on a deadline and usually a pretty harsh deadline. Uh, you know, if you're lucky, you get six weeks to write maybe an hour of music. Uh, so um, there isn't much sleep, and there certainly isn't much time to do any other thing in your life. So I found it very difficult to to do that and pay proper attention to my um, my young family. Uh, so I stopped when he was born. I stopped doing film music for a couple of years. And um, I just because I wanted to be able to spend that time with, um, with them. Uh, but I want, thought, well, I should, you know, Okay, if I'm not doing film music, what will I do? Look for some other things to do, and uh, there were, I did a variety of things. We put on a, um, a theatrical thing with um, a theatrical event with the Coens and uh, Charlie Kaufman that we called Theater of the New Ear. Uh, that was you know came out of that same period. Uh, but I also I always wished that I understood more about chemistry and organic chemistry, biochemistry. It's one of those things which I didn't take in college. Always wish I had. We probably all have things we wish we had studied back then when you know, our brains were young and fresh. Mm-hmm. And that was one. And I thought, well, let, you know, let me go see if I could take some classes in, in this. So I, um, I found out that Columbia had this program, in, a master's program in biotechnology. But it was really interesting. I wasn't doing, I, would, I was there with all the regular uh, you know, students. I was getting grades. I was there with the pre-med <laughs> students. I had to really work. And it was a, a certain humility comes from being a student that compared to being a film composer that I thought also was interesting. Um, so anyway, that's what I was doing. I would take you know, one or two classes at a time, uh, and I did it for years. I finally moved out of the city um, seven years ago and had to kind of discontinue the program. I just have, just have a thesis to write. <laughs> and, one, and one more credit uh, and, and, uh, on my master's. But, you know, it's, it's not as though the degree really means anything to me. It's just that um, it was really fun to be in that situation, to be you know, learning something completely new that had nothing to do with what I had been spending all my years um, you know, 
on. Going back to your college years, you've always been interested in science oh, yeah. and, and math. And the fact that you went to Columbia at, at turn, when you turned 50, there's a certain inquisitiveness, uh, intellectual restlessness that I sense from you all the time, every time I talk to you, which is such an amazing quality. And um, it seems to find itself in your approach to music. I mean, especially if you're working with someone as long as you've been working with the Coen brothers, for example, it seems as though each project, uh, you probably find yourself trying to figure out how to do something different, right, each time? Well, hopefully, yeah, that's, um that's part of the fun of this. And in a way, it is the fun is, you know, this when a project brings you opportunity to learn about new instruments or new uh, approaches to music or um, a, a genre that I didn't know anything about. So that's, yeah, that's part of the pleasure of, um, of, of being able to go from world to world, each film being a world unto itself and, and, uh, and explore each one um, as a, a new event. Um, that's right. And Joel Nathan have been pretty good about not repeating themselves. You know, they're almost, they're almost assiduous about, you know, if they do one film that's a film noir, the next one's gonna be a comedy, and then, you know, they're, they're pretty good about that. So that keeps me on my toes as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you approach that? Uh, what's the process with them? Do you uh, get to read the script beforehand, or do you see the film when it's for the first time when they've got it cut? I pretty much always read the script. I mean, their scripts are, uh, are you know, wonderful pieces of literature really and uh so i look forward to reading their scripts and i like reading scripts in general i think it's an interesting um an interesting medium the screenplay uh, so i always read their scripts and uh we will talk sometimes in g- very general terms um at that phase we'll talk about things like well what do you think the instruments might be because that helps them to budget it if nothing else you know you say was this an orchestral thing is it four players um you know, it, it helps to throw those ideas out there. And sometimes the, um, sometimes what we talk about then has nothing to do with the, what, you know, results uh, in the final score. Sometimes it's really, really helpful. Um, True Grit was, would be an example where it was really, really helpful. I read the script, I knew the book, but I reread the book. And I thought that one of the things that was present in the book but wasn't present in the script um, was the churchiness of the the girl you know the the book is written by her so her voice is there all the time on every page um and we had i had spoken to joan and we all agreed we don't want to do a quote western score unquote first of all there already was a true grit movie with a wonderful score um we wanted to do something else but we didn't know what else and so i went to them just before they left to shoot and said well what if we just like a you know, has something to do with church. It's like hymns, uh, and brings in that churchiness of of the uh, of the girl's background, which explains why she would even go into the circumstances that are so extraordinary in this this land of outlaws. Um, it's her self sense of self righteousness that she got from church, uh, and it turns out Ethan had was having the same idea. Uh, so um, that was. You know, that was great. If we were both thinking the same thing, it's probably, you know, it's probably something there. Mm-hmm. So while they were out shooting, I was uh, going through 19th century hymnals and collecting hymns that I thought were, were germane. Um, you know, ones that were, you know, tough, not, not hopeful or, or comforting, but, you know, the sort of stern, straight-backed pew kind of, uh, mm-hmm. kind of hymns. 
so that's a case where the the script and uh, the discussions at that phase actually really inform the final work. But a lot of times, um, I can't get that much musical detail from a script because there's just so many ways to shoot a script. That you know, you give it to different people, it will come out completely differently, and it will want completely different music. So I don't usually write anything at that stage. So then you watch a cut of the movie. I've always felt that, well, oftentimes the composer is the first audience for the movie. I think that's right. I'm, I'm very sensitive to the fact that the directors often haven't shown it to anyone other than the editor at the point at which I see it. So, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it is, it's a sensitive moment. It's true. So how, how, so how does the conversation ensue after that? Um, well, uh, yes, and I'll say, you know, along those lines, sometimes it's a bit of an arm wrestle to get them to show me the movie because I am the first audience. You know, they want to get it right. They want to get it right. And uh, they don't want to show me something that's too rough. But the earlier I see it, the more time I have to write. So um, as far as I'm concerned, I'd like to see an early rough cut. That helps me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to wait until they've got a director's cut because then I've killed, you know, a month or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes, yeah, it's, an, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a chore to convince a director to, that I'm not going to be judgmental, that you know, they can show me something as rough. And of course, the more that I know them, the more they will do this. Joel and Ethan, they'll show me just a scene. You know, if it's even not cut, they'll show me stuff. But that's because we know each other really well and um, just go back that far. Um, and they also, they edit their own films. Um, I don't know, it's, it's just more like a family vibe uh, between us. Uh, but um, otherwise, with, if it's a director that I don't know, um, just seeing one scene may not really be that helpful because I don't know what the actual function of the score is in the film. You have to see the whole thing, see it through to the end, see, oh, I see this is what the music is going to do, and it's going to, by the end, it will have achieved this, this goal. So I'll watch the film. And yeah, then I try to figure out what those, that goal is. What, what, usually for myself, the, um, the question is, what's missing in the film? What can I bring that isn't already there? Uh, that's generally the question I ask myself. Um, try to find some, ask some thing, some subtext or aspect of the story. In the case of True Grit, it was an actual aspect of the story. Like, why is this girl doing this thing? Oh, it's the church. It's the Bible. You know, she takes it very literally, and she's gone out into the desert. You know, um, so. Uh, but I'm looking for that thing that I think isn't quite, you know, on the screen or isn't quite um, apparent, and um, and that, that's what I'm hoping to try to play. Mm-hmm. So I, but I have to figure that out. It's not usually. It's not typical that the director will say, "This is the thing that we need." Um, most directors usually feel like, yeah, there's my film. It's all right there. It's on the screen. <laughs> and they may sense that there's some things that are missing. Um, uh, I'm happy to say a lot of the films I work on are, um, there's some complexity, uh, some you know, contradiction, irony, something like that in, in, um, in the story or in the way that the story is told. Uh, I like that. That's my favorite type of work. Uh, that's what I enjoy in life itself, and it's what I enjoy most media, you know, whether it's books or art or you know, film, um, is that kind of thing. And I'm happy to ha- have a lot of uh, people come to me with those films, sort of, I think, in a way, what I'm known for doing now is, you know, a film that's trying to do two contradictory things or play on two levels, and they, they, uh, they want some help 
with that. No, that's really, an, I mean, that's a big thing I wanted to ask you about how you specifically approach that kind of uh, a challenge because, you know, with the Coen brothers, for example, there's a lot of misdirection and, right, you know, and so you have to go along with that a little bit and what you're doing. Um, do you want, can you talk a little bit more about how you approach that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that is honestly one of the things that I enjoy in, in what I do, but it's, um, yeah, finding in a way the most interesting role for the music, which as you say, sometimes is to, you know, uh, let me say, first of all, one of the things music always does in a film pretty much is to perform some emotional manipulation of the audience, right? It's there and some subliminal level, you know, uh, directing them, uh, to feel certain ways in certain in uh, you know throughout the film, and um, sometimes uh, my job is to lie to them. <laughs> That's right. Misdirection is a nice way of putting it, but sometimes my job is to lie to them and or tell them to feel uh, the opposite of what they're actually seeing, which I think is very interesting as a, as a film goer. I find it a very interesting experience. Those are some of my favorite film music moments, or when you're being told to feel something different than, than what you see. And, um, and I love filmmakers like that. I mean, there are countless examples, but you know, thinking like Rosemary's Baby, where everything's very sunny and the music's very, you know, la, 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 you know, very uh, sweet. Uh, and um, you know, you know, as the film goes on, that things are not that sunny and not that sweet, something, you know, but the, the music still basically is insisting upon, um, and the, the way it's shot is insisting upon this quality that is contradicting your, you know, and other feelings that you have. I, I, I really enjoy that. I thought that was really especially evident in Barton Fink, for Right, example. exactly. Um, yeah, when I, uh, when I watched Barton Fink, um, the Coens weren't sure that it wanted any score at all. They, um, uh, they thought that maybe they, the whole thing could be played with um, Skip Leifsey's sound design which is extraordinary, and it does indeed play a lot of the roles of score. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, it's non-naturalistic um, sound design. You know, when someone opens a door, it's not making a normal door opening sound. It, it makes it, all this air rushes in as though you've been in a vacuum. And um, the hotel that Barton is in and makes these submarine type sounds of creaking and, you know, uh, it's, it's, the whole movie is full of non-naturalistic sound design that is, telling you about Barton's psyche in a way that music, you know, often would in a, in a score. So they weren't sure they wanted uh, a score at all. But when I saw it, I saw an aspect of Barton's um, psychology that I didn't think was uh, that clear, which was his childlike innocence, naivete. Mm -hmm. You know, he's presented as a, as a, you know, he's a successful playwright, he, uh, he lives the life of the mind. He, he thinks that he knows everything about, you know, everything, basically, about people, about, you know, the working class, uh, you know, you name it. But in fact, he's, he knows very little about the reality of life. Um, and uh, I thought I could play that in the music, just as a little childlike sort of tune. Um, but the, so there is that. I played that on piano for, uh, for Joel and Ethan, and they immediately got it. So, yeah, sure, that makes sense. But there's another aspect as we got deeper into it um, uh, of this like very slow moving lower things too. So it's very little, it's, it's simple score to analyze, a little childlike melody in the top of the piano and this very slow, low 
movement in the basses and bass trombones that are that, that goes against that and um uh it's yeah it's playing these two things is his innocence but then the the darkness of the real world that is um you know that he's well i don't know if you want to call it the real world but this dark world that he doesn't perceive or you know or understand that uh, is sort of pulling him down And that's, it's an interesting case because uh, Skip and I spotted that film at the same time. Spotting is where usually the composer sits with the director, film editor, music editor, and we, um, we say, okay, music's going to start here and end there. This is what it's going to do. Uh, it's really the first formal part of the process of film scoring. Um, you say where the music's going to go. But Skip um, sat in on that, which... Um, makes a lot of sense because in the end, the, the, one of the last steps in the film music um, phase of uh, production is the film mix where they mix in sound effects and dialogue and music. And um, it often be, is because the sound designer and dialogue editor have not coordinated with the composer, it's usually just a, a fight. Over, I should be louder here. No, I want to be louder here. You know, I can't mm. hear the crickets. I can't hear the trombones. Yeah. Um, but Ever since Barton Fink, generally Skip and I spot the films together because it is so helpful to make these decisions beforehand rather than try to figure them out later. So we would do things like Skip would say, well, I've got a mosquito in the room here. And I'd say, okay, you can have the high frequencies. I'm, I'll do this thing with the bass trombones. And, you know, uh, and then we would sh shift roles. There'd be another scene where he's got these low sounds coming from the hotel. Again, these are all things you wouldn't guess from watching the picture. Skip has to tell me. This is what I'm working on. And then I'd say, okay, well, I'm going to do a little high violin thing that sort of echoes the mosquito you had earlier in another scene. And we were able to trade off the frequency ranges and things like this. And, and we played each other what we were working on during the film. So they would all hopefully um, come together into a single sonic experience, which you know, makes so much sense. You might assume that that's how films are made, but in fact, I'm sad to say it's not. Yeah, there's very little conversation that takes place between sound and music a lot of times. It's really true. Um, do you ever watch them, when, in, the first time you watch a movie, do you ever watch it and just not think about music at all? Just Well, um, you know, honestly, if the, the better the movie is, the more that will be true. The more I will just watch it and get drawn into the, the experience of seeing a film. Um, that's right. 
uh, and and sometimes I'll come out, I'll watch it, and I'll think I know exactly what to do. And then, if, you know, if the director agrees with me on what exactly to do, then then life is good and it's easy. Sometimes I come out and say I have no idea what to do, <laughs> and then I have um, I have more work to do. I have to figure it out. But yes, when I'm first seeing a film, there's yeah, there's a problem-solving part of my mind that is sitting there thinking, okay, I've got to you know figure out what the idea of the score is. It's it got to have an idea. It's one of those. It might sound obvious, but um, the films don't typically come to me with a you know the, the people don't come to me with a, a brief and say this is what the score has to do. I have to figure it out. And but if I have a concept, if I have an idea, then great. That's you know it's it's much simpler than just trying to say, you know, I'm going to score this movie. It's not, you know, that doesn't work. So is that something that, is that, is that the first task that you assign yourself is to, is to try to arrive at a general concept that's going to work with the film and then work out the details? That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I try to come up with an idea, an angle. Um, and then I will start trying to think of music, but until I know, what the music's trying to accomplish until I have a, until I have that idea. There's no point in even trying to think of musical thoughts. But it, it really does help me to to have that. And then after that, I start sitting at the piano um, and figure out how to implement that concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's your main composing instrument. It is. Yeah, I usually will sit there until I have an idea. And even you know, the, the end result is not going to end up on piano. Typically, it's going to be in um, uh, you know, some other voice, whether it's, you know, it could be guitars, or banjos, or symphonic orchestra, or electronics, but um, but the piano is, I'm most comfortable with it. Also, you know, because it doesn't have an on-off switch, it doesn't feel like work. Like, if I walk <laughs> in my studio and I have to turn things on, now I feel like I'm working. I sit at the piano, it's more like fun. It's more um, just... Uh, expression and part of my life and mm-hmm. therapeutic too honestly mm-hmm. so um yes piano's mine and that's without picture or with picture? that's without picture yeah i don't once i have the idea i don't really um want to look at the picture uh i don't want to start scoring scenes i want to i go away from it really for uh, a little bit and once i at the piano if i have something oh i think you know this might work and develop it develop it and then i'll take it back and put it against picture but um, yeah, I don't want the music to get that specific that early. I don't want it to start playing the picture that, that early in the process. Mm-hmm. For me, that um, it's better to be a little divorced from it. I can't explain why, but the, the picture is, a, yeah, it's very specific. Specific things are happening, and I actually want to be a little more in um, a free association type world, mm-hmm. um, which brings up another thing if you don't mind my stepping backwards. Totally, no. But that's uh, temp music. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, temp music is uh, music that the editor or music editor will typically cut into the picture while the picture is being edited. A lot of editors like to cut to music. It gives them a beat, it gives them something to do. But also there's another, um, there are any number of reasons for it. The directors like to put existing music in just to see what works, what doesn't work. Um, they'll typically do this before they've even talked to the composer because it gives them a vocabulary with which to talk to the composer. And, um, and then another reason is that if they're doing previews of the film uh, for an, you know, 
a test audience, they need to have some kind of music in there. And again, the composer hasn't even been hired necessarily, certainly hasn't written anything yet. So um, uh, they put temp music in. And uh, as a as a composer, <laughs> uh, you know, I find it very frustrating to have to have to experience that. Um, it's, you know, I ask directors that I know well to either please don't put temp music in until we've, you know, we've spotted the film and talked about it, and um, or if you could possibly wait for me to start delivering you some some sketches of what it should could be, um, that would be great. And some directors are willing to wait. Um, but at the very least, please don't play it for me during the spotting sessions, which again, a lot of people want to do. They want to say, yeah, I like this piece because it's blah, blah, blah. But it has, it's that problem, again, of being too specific and too concrete too early in the process. You know, I, that, that first time through the film or spotting it, it's our one chance to really throw all the ideas up in the air and dream of a score that has never existed mm -hmm. for, that, for this film. And if instead there's music right there everything gets very concrete right away. People say, I like this rhythm, I like this tempo, I like the uh, clarinet, I like, you know, it's um, suddenly we've lost that one moment when it could all have been, you know, everything's possible. Yeah. It's one of the many anti-creative, you know, uh, elements of the, of the process of making films. Uh, so I try to, try to do it. Try to see it. it without it. Yeah. Um, before you were talking about how uh, originally the Coen brothers didn't envision music or much music in Barton Fink. Um, and let's talk about No Country for Old Men, where there's very little music. That's its own challenge. Like, I've, I've found that the longer you wait to introduce music into a movie, the harder it is to figure out where it should come in. That's really true. So what was, what was that like? Well, um, that one, I think... You know, Joel thought that there was a role for score in the movie. Um, he just thought there was, that there were scenes that needed the, um, the effect that score can lend to a, a movie. He not, not saying that he thought there, there, there should be strings or any particular instruments, but he felt that there were scenes that needed a little more than you were getting just from the visual and the, um, and the sound effects. Uh, that the sense of drama or tension, uh, whatever, could, needed to be deepened. Ethan was dubious that there was any such thing, score, any such score that would work. And it's funny. I still, I still occasionally think, oh wait, I know now. You know, here we are, many years later. I know what would have worked. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, we tried a, a lot of different things, uh, and every time, in, every time you were aware that there was music. Every time something that came on it sounded like a musical instrument, it did change the film. And as you say, maybe if you'd had it there right from the start, but uh, it would be different. But the, um, this film, is it's all tension, right? The whole film is tension. And if you lose the tension at any point, the film collapses. It's constant you know, stress and, uh, and tension. And a lot of it actually comes from quiet you're just in the plains, there's no other person there, uh, you know, um, West Texas and the air, the wind is blowing across mm -hmm. the plains. Mm -hmm. And um, that extreme quiet is part of where the tension comes from in the movie. Um, so what can you put in there that won't, you won't notice? When every time I had something come in, even if it was an intentionally non-musical sound like the harmonic on a violin, mm -hmm. 
at some point it became it became like music and you um and it wasn't working it it turned it into a movie for lack of a better phrase i i it's hard to describe but that's what happened it it became less real as soon as there was a score in it and the tension went out of it uh but at the same time yes joel <laughs> wanted certain these scenes to um to be um helped and uh what i ended up doing was uh, developing these sounds that have no beginning and no end uh, that you could bring into a scene. I could um, bring them up underneath the sound of wind or the sound of um, tires on pavement. And because it's a sound with no beginning and no end and it doesn't, sh it doesn't have a melodic movement or anything like that, um, they're kind of s steady state sounds. Um, you were never aware of their, of their presence. Um, and it was, it was composed of... Um, Tibetan singing bowls, which are just a constant ringing tone, and sine waves, basically. Um, that was it. And they would move. They'd be like maybe the, it would come in like this, and then it would go, you know, or something like that. But again, that sounds as much like a sound effect as it does like music, maybe more so. So I don't think you were ever conscious of hearing score in that movie. And there isn't very much, as you say. I think it's about 13 minutes of, of score in the film. wonderful scene in which Javier Bardem's character is threatening this guy in a service station over a coin toss. The guy doesn't really understand that it's his life that's at risk, but we do as the audience. And um, I you know, pitched this sound that's at um, basically 60 hertz. It's a, a B natural, which is this, the sound of, um, of electrical current in this country. So it blended in with all the refrigerators or other things that were in that scene. Um, just the sound of fluorescent lights, and um, uh, so you don't notice it. But the moment that he reveals the, the result of the coin toss, my score ends. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly there's this, something goes away, and you're only aware that there was something there because it went away. Um, so sort of what you might call negative scoring. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a challenge. I still wish I could have figured out some uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> some way to score that movie. But in fact, the the silence. Um, is almost certainly the the right solution because that film did work. Uh, yeah, there's no yeah, question. Yeah. And that that's, that particular scene you reference is one of my favorite all time. It's a great. It's a great one. It has all the. It's funny for some reason that you cannot describe. Why is this funny? But you're laughing. Oh, partly Javier Bardem's 
hair, but also the way he the way he delivers every line is perverse, and this way you just have to you just have to laugh, even though you know it could end really badly. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you you're you have an, a background in electronic music, but I've noticed that a, a, a lot of your scores you're actually trying to use real instruments to recreate or create sounds that some people might attempt on an electronically. <laughs> um, do you true. want to talk about that? Like how well, you work with instruments? Yeah, I mean, you know, I um, I came to music from, uh, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I used to play piano uh, just to entertain myself, really, just therapeutically, to get all the teen angst out. And um, at a certain point, and I made sure all through college to have a piano in my room. I was, you know, if you get to most colleges a day or two before school opens, you'll find abandoned pianos because it's not that easy to move you know, to move them around. So people will have left old pianos, and so I would do that, get there a day early, and get the piano moved into my room. And um, these are not great pianos. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a skeleton of a piano, but it was enough to satisfy me. And towards the end of uh, college, I um, kind of discovered electronic music. I, I'm not even sure, honestly, what led me to it, but I found out that Harvard had an electronic music studio, and uh, and as it so happened, the professor that ran it, Ivan Sharepnin, was a trip. There's no other way to put it. He was, unlike the rest of this fairly stuck-up um, you know, music uh, department, he was um, very experimental and um, experiential. We would, you know, sometimes a, a class would just consists of sticking a parabolic mic out a window and pointing it at the sidewalk down below and having the voices come in and go into tape loops and, you know, move them around the room. Um, it really, you know, helped me to think of music as, as more than just, you know, melody and harmony and um, as more as an arrangement of sonic events in time. And um, I got interested in that and I already had a background in computers, so then I started getting into uh, computer music and um, that was nice. It was bringing together interests. I'm, I, I am a, a nerd, uh, and uh, so it was nice to be able to bring that together with you know, my interest in numbers and in um, and in technology. Bring that together with my interest in being able to express something emotionally through sound. The place where like numbers and emotion meet uh, to me is music. That's that's what I would define is what makes music special to me. It's where you know um, the math and the and the emotion you know. Math can express itself emotionally in music. Well, that was actually going to be one of my questions. Was the because of the relationship between music and mathematics, where do you find the emotion in the numbers? Well, I find you know um, the numbers are you know um, very moving. I mean, I, I I do find them to be the one eternal thing in existence is mm -hmm. the the numbers. I think if you went to another planet or another solar system or another galaxy. There would still be the same number of platonic solids as there are here. I don't know what you know how many other things you could say were definitely going to be the same. Um, but um, I do feel that that's something very eternal. And when you and I have that kind of Pythagorean feeling that when you see a little bit of magic in 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 the numbers that they create these patterns, it's um, it's very moving to me. Um, and uh, and then when you put you know all the different intervals on a piano or any instrument. Our, um, our musical ratios, they do go you know, back to Pythagoras work, who worked them out. Um, and they all have different feelings. You know, the major third and the minor third 
you have different feelings and um, uh, and different cultures might interpret those feelings differently, but they definitely feel different. And um, those are just ratios. These ratios have different feelings. Um, I think everyone could, could agree if I played them for you that that's true. So um, there is some relationship between um, these these numbers and our emotions. And people are still trying to f define what that is. I remember um, my freshman year in college, Leonard Bernstein gave the um, Charles Eliot Norton lectures, and one of his ideas was that he was trying to explain music as a linguistic phenomenon. He was really into Chomsky at that time, and he was trying to explain music in that, those terms. But he was also, he agreed that, you know, admitted that music is, is mathematical, and he was trying to say, trying to answer your question, like what, what is it about these numbers that makes them feel a certain way? And he had his ideas, um, but uh, everyone, you know, it's not, it hasn't really been explained why these numbers, these ratios feel the way that they do, but they do. And uh, working, exploring that is one of the things I think that keeps composers <laughs> working and interested, um, is exploring all those different um, aspects of the relationship between number and feeling and, and, um, and sound. But um, you're right, that's my experience was mostly with um, electronic instruments. And um, when I started doing film scoring, you know, I just fell into it. Joel Nathan asked me to do Blood Simple. That was, began mostly electronic. Well, the, the things I presented them with were mostly electronic, but there was one um, more tonal piece that while we were in the recording studio, I just had, I started playing it on the piano, and Ethan and Joel just kind of realized that it was, even though they had thought that they had assumed their score would be electronic, they've, they've done this thriller, and they, they wanted the score to contradict the sort of Tex, Texan, you know, look of the film. They wanted it actually to be very cold. Mm -hmm. But when they heard this theme on piano, they realized that the warmth that the, just the piano lent um, was interesting. It, it brought this thing that they hadn't expected to the movie, and, uh, and they ended up using it more and more. We just went more and more to the piano for certain scenes because it, it, it brought the humans in the story together in a way. We did, uh, I guess, maybe two films later, we did Miller's Crossing, for which they wanted an orchestral score. They knew that right up front. They wanted or a traditional orchestral score. They were dressing the set and dressing the characters in these very lush ways, big overcoats and big hats and uh, fall colors from the trees. And 
they wanted the music to be the score to be lush and you know, anyone else would have gone and hired someone who knew something about orchestral <laughs> music uh, but they asked me to do it um, it was extraordinary so while they were shooting I um, I was trying to learn about orchestral music but I gotta tell you I knew nothing I had no idea what an oboe was or you know, nothing uh, but it's very exciting, and I, I, you know, you're right, I, li I like learning new things, so um, I just basically, what I did is I poured over scores that I like. I got together all these the things that I love, like my favorite Stravinsky or Bartok or you know, Brahms or what have you, you know, and just look, oh, this is what they're doing with the horns, this is what they're doing with the, the you know, uh, woodwinds. Tried to understand it, uh, and then when we... Um, when that film came out, what I ended up doing was writing a fair, really a, you know, a fairly old-fashioned score. There's some places where it goes off into kind of Penderecki territory and these very violent scenes, but mostly it plays like an old Hollywood score. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when that w film came out, people hadn't been doing scores like that that much in you know, a while. And uh, people started ask, calling me up and asking me to do this, this thing. And so that was now my thing, was to do um, traditional orchestral film scores. So for years, yeah, that's right. I, total, you know, I thought of myself as an electronic musician, but people were asking me to do these other things. Uh, you know, one of the things that does interest me is trying to you know, work with extended techniques on these instruments to, to go back to some of my interest in, in sonic experimentation. Um, and uh, every instrument has its own vocabulary of extended techniques, like on clarinet, um, these um, uh, multiphonics, where they can get more than one note at a time, but they're like un sort of unpredictable and and um, and and very strange sounding. But every instrument has its thing, you know, uh, harp, violin, you name it. Um, so it's been very interesting to try to learn about those. You learn most by just asking the the players um, and and finding out what they can do, um, but um, yeah, I, I I like that, and I I I prefer my scores not to sound like they're like one thing. Uh, Miller's Crossing is an orchestral score. There's nothing else. Uh, you know, it's it is that. Uh, but if I my scores can be a little harder to um, to uh, categorize, uh, I like that better. I like it if it's a um, you know, a hybrid of the electronic and the and the instrumental, or if the instrumental things sound electronic or, or what have you, I, I enjoy that. How, how did you actually meet Joel and how did the, and Ethan in the first place that they asked you to do Blood Simple? Um, it was actually through Skip. Uh, Skip uh -huh. Leavesay was a bass player and um, I knew him through the music scene in New York that would be like in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And, um, we had um, one band that I played with were um, were friends of Skip, so we, we just knew each other through through that world. He you know knew my music in uh, you know, places like CBGBs and the Mud Club, uh, places like that. Now, what made him think that I was you know, the right person to do this movie? I don't know. Uh, that's a different thing, I guess. You know, I was even though I was playing in places like CBGBs, I was sometimes doing instrumental music, playing instrumentals rather than vocal mm -hmm. stuff. So that was um, different, and some of that stuff's kind of moody and you know might seem appropriate for a film score. Mm -hmm. I think he also thought maybe that I had some personality traits in common with Joel and Ethan. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he had um, yeah he'd been hired to do the sound editing for that uh, that film, their first film. And I don't I don't 
think Skip had sound edited a feature film before either. So mm-hmm. really, first, you know, these are people with no money and and no and no experience, all trying something out, which is what you do in your twenties, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, yeah, he Skip called me up and said, "Would you be at all interested in something like this? You know, looking for someone who will do it for no money, you know, basically." And um, so I said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> it's awesome. I, I love Skip. He's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, of course, you've worked with so, so many other filmmakers, and you have these ongoing relationships with them. One, one is Todd Haynes, and. The score that you did for Carol was nominated for an Academy Award. It's, it's a beautiful score. And um, if we could talk about that for a minute. One of the things that I really like about it, and I've seen this in some of your other work, and it's like a structural uh, thing that you you did, which is it seems as though the, the music pretty much stays unresolved through, throughout <laughs> until the end when it becomes incredibly cathartic when you start to resolve it. Is that a thing that you do consciously? Because I've seen you do that. And uh, do you want to talk about what you were, your approach was to that film? Well, sure. Um, you know, it's taken me a long time to learn that um, it is, you know, to learn how to go from a pop music background to, to film scoring, one of the things you, you do need to do is get your head around that you're not writing two-minute pieces, even though they may be in the, you know, it looks like a two-minute piece because it, it lasts two minutes on the screen but you really need to view it as a, a two-hour piece. It has to be viewed that way. It can't just be one self-contained piece, another self-contained piece, another self-contained piece. It has to um, you know, work as an entire you know, whatever opera. Uh, and, and so you have to look at the relationship between each cue, as we call them, each piece of music. Um, and if one of them, yeah, if, if one does resolve, then, you know, what gets you going on the next, you know, next scene? Um, it's just like, you know, when people are writing um, uh, uh, serial, um, uh, serial novels like Dickens or something, you, you, you always, every, every uh, episode ends on a cliffhanger of some mm-hmm. sort, right, to get you to, you know, ready for the next one, get you to buy the next one. Um, it's generally film scoring, you know, it's often like that. Sometimes you do bring something to an end, um, because uh, the scene needs that for some reason. There is some, some closure of some sort. But, uh, but I would say that as a general rule, you don't want to. You want to um, leave it leading to whatever is next. And the question whether you even resolve it at the end of the film or not, is um, that's an open question. I mean, in Carol, I know you feel it was resolved, but in fact, it, it ends, you know, mm-hmm. on a cliffhanger of sorts, you know? It gets big, 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 and then it stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and different people interpret it in different ways. What's going to you know happen at at, at that end? Um, but you're right. And it, it took me a long time to, like I say, to to make that transition. I think it's a you know there these days there are a fair number of people who come from pop, um, rock, whatever, rap, um, uh, hip hop traditions into film scoring. But when I started, it was fairly unusual. There was you know Danny Elfman mm-hmm. and me. I don't know who else was, you know, at that time was doing that. And, and it was, fr- and, you know, we, <laughs> we took a lot of crap for it because we weren't, you know, conservatory trained composers. They, you know, people didn't, I mean, I w- I'm here in New York, which saves me from a lot of the crap Danny got. 
out in Los Angeles because, yeah, he's like the whole music branch of the Academy or, you know, a different type of composer mm-hmm. they were back then. And they, look, they you know, actively looked down on, on what he was doing. Um, I, that's not the way it is now, but, um, but it was more then. And anyway, that transition among the things that I learned uh, was that question of resolution and of how to, um, how to keep the piece moving forward always, like going from, you know, not using the same key signature to, you know, one after another because it sounds too much the same. You've got to keep the key signatures modulating to, again, keep it feel like it's going somewhere, you know. Um, uh, there's always those little, you know, mm-hmm. aspects like that that are part of looking at it as a, as a bigger structure. That's right. Mm-hmm. And the music for Carol is also very, um, there's some, a degree of restraint. Do you want to talk about like what your attitude was as you were approaching writing that? Um, yeah, well, there's certainly one of the um, overriding uh, aspects of that story, especially as a piece of um, of cinema, is the uh, the fact that the characters don't speak about it's a love story, but they they really never speak about how they feel about each other. Uh, in fact, they bear, they rarely even admit that they have a relationship. Uh, and it's uh, because, I mean, Todd said that at that period, you know, they might not have even had the uh, vocab- vocabulary mm-hmm. to speak about it. No one uses the word lesbian in the movie. It's not, you know, clearly they love each other. You see this in their eyes and you see it in their, you know, their body language, but they don't use words to um, express it. And uh, And that you know, almost painful restraint is one of the themes of the movie. Uh, so the music, on the one hand, yes, is going to t- say a lot about the emotions that they can't express themselves. That's that's certainly one of the things the music's going to do in that film. Um, it says what they are not allowed to say. Um, but at the same time, um, I wanted to maintain some of that, that air of restraint. You know, uh, there are a few moments where this, you know, the lovemaking scene where the music's going to go get big and um, uh, and Todd wanted it to get big. That was really a question. How much do we go? How far do we go with that? How big do we make it? And um, and Todd felt it could get really big, but then the question was, how do we get back out of that? We've gotten really big and we've got like another 12 seconds and then what do you, how do you get back to the world that they really live in um, after that? Um, and it took some work to make that happen, but Generally speaking, yeah, the, the, the music tries to maintain that feeling that, yeah, we're, um, we're in a world of um, restraint. Restraint's almost a, too polite a word for it, but constraint, restraint, you know, it's... Um, There's it's also right. an element of um, they're getting swept away in something, just the, re- the repeating pattern. And right. That. Yeah, my, one of my favorite scenes is um, um, when Rooney Mara's character uh, goes to Carol's house for the first time and they're just in a car, and it's just a car ride. Uh, but it's shot, Ed Lachman and, and Todd shot it as just all close-ups, and it's just a shot of a hand or part of the dashboard of the car or someone's eye. Uh, so extreme, and done extremely subjectively, it sort of blurs in and out. Um, and so you're seeing things, in other words, from um, Therese's point of view, Rooney Mara's character, and she's in this heightened state where she, you know, her, fo- her focus has come down to like, you know, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it's blurring. And um, 
to capture that in the music, I um, had these sort of flurries of piano notes going into this delay, this echo that would just build up into a kind of a cloud. I thought of it as a cloud of, of piano notes where you can't identify where any of the bars are, you know, you couldn't say what the tempo is. Um, and I thought that, that that that's an extreme example of repetition where the notes pile up that um, in, onto each other. But it seemed to um, get this swirling, you know, you're... St- you know where your insides are, you know, all mixed up because of the emotions you're feeling. That that that, and you you know you feel lightheaded. For me, yeah, it, ca- it exactly it, it captured that for me, and um, I really I'm, I'm very fond of that piece. It's mm-hmm. um, and it's just you know, it has no, it's almost no music in it. It's just me sitting just extemporizing on the piano. What I did was used. Um, like a sort of studio trick to separate the left and the right hand. I played them at the same time, but played them into my computer, and then I separated the left hand into this cloud of notes and treated the right hand differently so you can actually discern the melody. So it is one piano being played, but being treated in two different ways. So this, the project you're working on with Todd now, Wonderstruck, you did that in London. Yeah, we did that at Abbey Road. At Abbey Road, which is, as we were saying, is just an amazing, has this amazing quality where it can amplify a small am- ensemble and make it just sound huge. Is that one of the reasons you like to work there? Or? That's one. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons. Um, that's one. The the rooms are just gorgeous sounding. They. They're not, you know, uh, Studio Two, which is the old Beatles room. You know, they've tried to keep it looking <laughs> just like it did then. So, yeah, there's sort of like old uh, felt on the on the walls from the 50s and 60s. But you know, they dare not change anything because acoustics is a little bit of a dark art. And if you change something, you know, maybe the magic will go away. So it basically looks pretty similar. If you look at pictures from when the Beatles were recording there, it looks pretty similar. But these rooms sound great, and you, um, my engineer Mike Farrow says the same thing. You just get one person to play a note in this room, and it just sounds beautiful. You can mm-hmm. put the mic almost anywhere, and it just sounds beautiful. Um, 
their, um, their great sounding rooms are very tall, uh, which is a hard thing to achieve in New York. You know, they're like, you know, 30, 40 foot ceilings. Uh, um, it has a, col- a columnar sound to it, actually. You feel like right. mass. That's right, exactly. And, and the way, it, you know, I think, you know, the way I imagine it working is that the sound goes up and all the instruments mix up there. And then, you know, um, and without that, without the air up there for the sound to mix, what you get in, instead is a set of separate instruments in smaller studios. Whereas there, with all that air, the sound has a chance to, to blend together in, um, in this beautiful way. But as I say, even a single instrument uh, sounds gorgeous. The sound goes up and it just blossoms in a way. So there's that aspect. Uh, it's also technically very good. Uh, you know, they have, I, I, I think, sort of inarguably the best microphone closet in the world, <laughs> you know, because uh, they've been collecting these mics for decades. Um, the tech people there are really good. They still do this apprenticeship type um, training that they've done for decades where you begin as a, you know, by serving tea, but you get to see how everything works. And th- these are people who already are trained in, t- in the technology, but they begin serving tea, but that means they, s- they see how the sessions work, they see the dynamics, and they work their way up from that. So um, the tech people are amazing, and the musicians are amazing. And one other thing that I love about Abbey is it has this little canteen, um, which has always been there. You see pictures of, like I say, the Beatles are sitting in there having their tea break. Um, they also have my favorite soda. What's that? Aqua Libra. <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I was working there, I kept running off to the, <laughs> to the canteen to get it because I couldn't find it anywhere else. It's a great thing. Cause it, you know, this, Abbey Road has many studios. So there's at least um, three studios, a big one, medium-sized one, smaller one, and some mixed rooms. Um, so there's always multiple people working there, and it was even true back in the 60s. And, you know, I read, you know, the Abbey Road um, diaries of the Beatles sessions, and they'd go down there, and there'd be uh, Peter Sellers would be recording something with, the, you know, the Gong Show and uh, Goon Show, I mean, and the, um, or Frank Sinatra would be down there. Everybody would get down together down the canteen and say, how's it going, what you working on? And it happens to me, too. I'll be there, and Tom Newman will be they're recording something in one of the other rooms or Howard Shore. Um, and as I say, it's not film composing, not the most collegial uh, you know, business, um, especially living as I do away from um, the industry. So it's my chance to see other people, other composers. Anyway, I lo- I, so there's quite a few things. I yeah, really the like can- canteen, the, cult- the canteen culture and the ability to mingle and, and it's actually kind of inspiring. I think it really is. Um, I, yeah, I love it. Yeah. So we, most of the people that you have worked with uh, are what you might call, I guess, auteurs or independent auteurs, uh, Todd and, and the Coen brothers, of course, and um, Charlie Kaufman and um, Spike Jones. But you've, you also did one of the big tent poles of all time, Twilight. And I have to think that the process is different. Well, you know. Um, or was it? Well, I'd like to point out Catherine Hardwick was the director on that. So, you know, that's, true. Um, that's, that's not, you know, while we look back on it as being a big tent pole, that wasn't the way we thought of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't, we didn't know it was going to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Catherine had done these wonderful, uh, you know, independent movies about teen life that I, th- were, I thought were amazing. Yeah. I wouldn't honestly have worked in the movie if it weren't for Catherine. Um, she had me come out to where they were shooting and she convinced me that we were going to do something. It wasn't just going to be you know, a teen romance, but it was going to somehow say something about 
teenage life and sexuality and what have you. And I do like to look at it that way. But um, yeah, but <laughs> uh, that's right. It's, uh, it became bigger. Like uh, the whole time that we were working on it, it was getting bigger because the books were getting bigger. And uh, what happened, with, it was the first film I worked on where the internet, social media on the internet became an actual part of the, the process of making the film. Uh, at that time, it was called the blogosphere. And uh, as we were working on it, um, the company making it, Summit Entertainment, became aware that uh, there were thousands and then tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of uh, fans of the books who were talking about the movie. What's, what's the movie going to be like? Who are they going to cast for this? Who are they going to cast for that? I remember that when I, when I went to visit the set, um, Catherine had just gotten uh, a memo saying that we have to add this scene that's not in the script where, uh, where the boy, Rob Pattinson's character, Edward, um, plays the piano for the girl, Bella, played by Kristen Stewart. It, it hadn't been in the script because it doesn't actually advance the story in any way. But what had happened was, on the blogosphere, so many people were saying, what are they going to use for Bella's lullaby? What, 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 what music is going to be Bella's lullaby? And Summit had just basically, they were responding to an interest in, uh, that they sensed from the internet in this thing. So they said, okay, Catherine, you can have half a day to shoot this scene. Um, of course, we don't know what the music is, so just shoot it so that we can cheat the, you know, Edward's fingers. And so Catherine told me when I was there, you know, if you do this movie, you get to write Bella's Lullaby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, so it became, you know, starting from exactly that point, became uh, a stranger and stranger experience because of the, um, the interest that the, that the fans had in, in the film, uh, the interest that they had in the music that didn't exist yet, but that I was going to write. Um, and then, you know, also the, the nervousness of the, of the studio about what the film and what the music would be. Right. I mean, you were, so in a way you were working towards these certain expectations. And, yeah. and how, did it, how did that influence? Did it influence the music at all? Or were you able to sort of, you and Catherine, just kind of stay focused creatively? Or did you feel that there were other expectations now on, that were being placed on what the music could accomplish? Well, um, no, I just, you know, I, I have a, a rule of thumb. It doesn't, you know, doesn't always, I can't always get everyone to obey it, but my rule of thumb is that I work with the director, and if other people involved in the production, like executives, producers, editors, if they have some ideas about the music, they tell the director, and the director tells me. That way, everything's filtered through the director. I'm not talking to five different people about the music, because that... Um, I, I wouldn't know what to do, uh, and um, and I, you know, to me the collaboration is with the director. That's where my collaboration lies. Um, I'm I don't object to talking to producers or writers or, or anyone else about it, but um, I can't take their advice because the director and I are in the process of trying to make a film, and um, I don't think that process is helped by my hearing other people's opinions. Um, so that's my rule of thumb, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, and on Twilight, um, mostly I did just work with Catherine. It was great. I would you know, work with her, and, and she was happy about what I was doing. If she wasn't happy, she'd tell me, and I'd you know, rework something. She was very happy with Bella's lullaby as I um, had it. And, um, but I could also see that 
I knew that she had to play it at some point for the studio, but she kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Mm -hmm. And it's partly a process of hers. She does, she just, you know, didn't want to have them involved. Uh, she was worried about what they might say. I, 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 I don't know why, honestly, but she was, and maybe she had good reason to be worried. But um, when she finally did play, we went in to have a meeting and play all the sketches of what I'd written. Um, mostly it went over fine, but on Bella's Lullaby, which had already yeah, become a focus of attention, uh, there's one executive who he said, well, that first note, that first note, that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> Is that dissonant? And, you know, he'd had enough music education, you know, uh, and uh, he's right, it's dissonant. It's really as dissonant as anything could be. I think the very first chord is A, B, and B flat, you know, like this very dissonant moment. But it immediately resolves down to something that's consonant, but that first thing is dissonant. It's like, and to me, if I have to explain it musicologically, it's, it's the, this little, the edge, the angst, the pain of, you know, of, uh, of love. But... Anyway, he, he, he focused on that and said, I, I don't know. I don't think our audience is going to accept that. Because he's thinking, he's thinking, what if I were a 10-year-old girl, you know, or a 12-year-old girl, whatever. You know, would, you know, would I accept a dissonant chord? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so I do what I usually do in those situations. I nod my head and write it down mm -hmm. and then pay no more attention to it. Um, but like he, he, you know, a week later, he called and he said, so how are we going with that, that dissonant note? We've got something new? And I couldn't believe he was, this was still in his mind, you know. Um, I was sure he'd get it, he'd be working on special effects or onto another movie or something, you know. Um, but he still had that in his mind. And then uh, like a week later, we're, we're getting ready to go to London to record this. And uh, he, uh, he called and said, you know, I'm not going to sign off on this, you know, without, unless I hear something, you know, else for Bella's Alibi. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, it's um, yeah. I, I won't go on. I can go on with the story. You no, know, no, but it is. While, it, but it does. It is interesting, and, and it points to the fact that, that when it comes to music and film, music is so subjective. Everyone has a different reaction to it. That's right. It's true. And at certain certain point, you know, it, it's your and the director's vision of what it should be, ideally. You know. Right. Because it's right. It's not, it is so subjective. If you get eight people involved, I mean, I've a couple of times I've worked in the um, TV advertising, you know, um, aspect of writing music. And there, yeah, typically there are eight people in a room giving opinions. And I don't know what to do uh, about that. I mean, it's... I yeah. used to, when I was doing music supervision, I used to say if I wasn't doing that, I could work for the State Department. I mean, it was just that kind of diplomacy, you know, yeah. always around music, it seems. Yeah, that's right. But in the end, it has to feel right, right? It's, in the end, it's going to, the music in a film is going to be all about how it feels. Mm -hmm. So I guess my last question for you, for you is there are certain scores where you use the human voice, um, Twilight, um, Hudsucker Proxy, Hail Caesar, there's this great choral piece. <laughs> you have a background in choral music. What is it about the human voice that ultimately becomes this instrument that conveys something that no other instrument in the orchestra can convey? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I'm, if you ask me to sing... A, a song it, you would you would see that I have a terrible voice but uh, I've never been a singer but there was this point where I in, uh, in my development as a musician there I thought you know you I do I do I think everyone should sing it's a good thing good physically good you know spiritually and a good way to understand music to get it in your body 
Um, so I was, you know, looking for some uh, some way to get into that, and um, I had gone to a concert. Brian Eno had taken me to a concert by the Harmonic Choir, David Hikes and the Harmonic Choir. And I think it was like it was this um, fundraiser where like lots of different uh, performers performed uh, up at Carnegie Hall. Uh, but um, the Harmonic Choir is one of those groups, and they do. It's a small usually a small ensemble of like six or seven singers who do overtone singing. They bring out the overtones in their voice so that it's so, a particular overtone is so loud, they focus on it so that it sounds like you're hearing two things. You're hearing the fundamental and the overtone. Um, and uh, so, so someone's singing two notes at the same time. And it's something that uh, exists in certain musical cultures, like in Tuva and um, in Tibet, Mongolia. Um, but here, it's, uh, it's certainly not part of our culture. We use overtones to distinguish our vowel sounds, and you know we use them in utilitarian ways. But it hasn't just it just hasn't been part of um, Western choral you know tradition really. Uh, but David put together this group based on it, and um, and I developed the idea that that's what I'm going to do. It's different enough that um, it'll keep me intellectually in, involved, and it turns out to be very, you know, mathematically based, you know, because of the harmonics are all based on ratios, um, and I found that interesting. And anyway, I just, I approached him, and I said, I want to learn how to do this, and I you know, was very determined, and uh, so I uh, studied with him and ended up joining the group and, and touring with them. And um, so that's my background in, in um, in the in human uh, choral um, practice. But I do think within film music, which is typically doesn't have, film score typically doesn't have words per se. That's that, you know, writing songs is one thing. Film score usually just ends up in a different category. Um, there is still something special about the human voice. It, it peaks part of your, you know, auditory system when you, you, know, you can hear a hundred other instruments going and if there's one human voice in there, it totally lights up that part of your ear that can pick out a voice in a noisy environment. We, we've been evolved to do that, to hear the human voice. And so it just lights up a part of the brain. Um, uh, which, and I think that that just as a um, neurological experience is interesting. Um, but if it's doing something also that's kind of unrecognizable, you can't actually pin it down, it's not saying words, you can't know what it's doing. That then also is interesting because your brain is like peaked but confused. Um, I like, I enjoy that experience too. Uh, so it, it can do a lot of special things. Um, and of course it has also all these different traditions that you can be calling upon and referencing. But um, in the end, it's mostly, I just think it's, um, it's interesting because it addresses a different part of your brain than um, instrumental music does. It really opens up something something different. And when do you make the choice to use it? Uh, well, it's a big choice to honestly to have voice in a um, in a score. I mean, sometimes the the movie you know it, it makes sense within the context of the movie, like Twilight. Uh, ultimately, especially in the some of the sequels, we I did the the two last episodes in the Twilight series. Um, they involve a uh, sort of like a coven, you know, where they, they, they're in this um, almost monastic type environment, you know, so sure, boy, you know, that choir um, makes sense there. Um, um, but it is usually a big statement. Like I say, it's, it's um, to have a human voice in a score. 
for one thing, you you risk uh, you know interfering with the dialogue. So you, you know it has to be placed very carefully uh, in the mix. But um, but also yeah, it does it like I say it op- it it opens up this part of the, the your brain um, that um, that instrumental music doesn't, and you should have a good reason I think as a composer for doing that. Um, well, you use it in Hudsucker Proxy, right? Yes, um, and yeah, exactly. In Hudsucker Proxy, there are a couple of things. One, you know, one of the first questions uh, I think that. Uh, the boys had was you know what to do for when people jump out of you know are falling towards the the pavement it's a, it's a thing that happens multiple times in the movie uh sometimes people make it all the way to the pavement sometimes they don't quite um but what are we going to do there and i thought um you know just a you know a, a soprano just going higher and higher and higher and higher until she can't sing anymore might be funny and you know uh, but also appropriate um, and it's a, just a big it's a big thing in the film that that scene. So you want something big, and the fa- and the idea of using a human voice that would, uh, you know, suddenly open up this other part of your mind um, was seemed seemed appropriate. Thank you so much. I know you got a lot going on. You're always very gracious, and I always love just getting to speak with you and hear what you have to say. So thanks for doing this. I feel the same way, Alex. Well, I appreciate it. All right. Good luck with the film that you're working on, too. Can't wait to see that. Thanks. Me, too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Okay. Well, it's always a tremendous pleasure and honor to get to speak with Carter. I hope you enjoyed that. There's a lot more great information that Carter's put on his his own website, carterbrowell.com. You can go there and check it out. More stories, samples from the Twilight piano discussion that took place if you want to check it out. I also want to just mention uh, a little self-promotional thing. Uh, My 78 Project partner, Lavinia Jones-Wright, and I will be doing an event at Yale University on March 31st and April 1st. We'll be screening our movie, The 78 Project Movie, and doing a 78 Project session with our friends from Louisiana, the Lost Bayou Ramblers. If you're around there, please do come check it out. All that information is on the Yale University website calendar. Thanks for listening. See you next time.